Football is back, and right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day, and with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Welcome to this week's Zonal Marking podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. The Premier League season has finished and with six weeks until the restart, we've got a little bit of time to reflect on what was a strange and fascinating campaign in many ways. I'm Ali Maxwell, delighted to be joined as ever by Michael Cox, a man who loves to reflect. Hi, Michael. (laughs) How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Yeah, Premier League season over. Looking forward to the obviously FA Cup final and European action the week after that. No chance of things slowing down on site, though. Um, you are one of many athletic writers and it's the sort of collaboration of all collaborations, isn't it, on site at the moment? They've just launched the Premier League 60. I'd like you to explain what that is uh, and tell me a little bit about number 59, written by you, released this morning. Yeah, it's a, it's a countdown of the 60 greatest players in Premier League history, as voted for by uh, the Athletic writers. And it's maybe not an entirely original idea, but I think the point is just to give an excuse for writers to write some some really in-depth profile pieces about all the players featured on the list. So, yeah, the first one was up yesterday. was about Les Ferdinand by George Culkin, who obviously remembers his time on uh, on Tyneside very fondly. And the article up there today is uh, by myself about Jamie Carragher and how Carragher, as you would uh, notice from his punditry, is very big on detail <laughs> and football history and researching and that kind of thing. And basically about how he became a good centre-back by just being obsessed with football and reading and taking in information about, you know, watching DVDs of the Milan defence in the 90s and that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's 58 more of those to come over the summer. I'm looking forward to seeing what number Papisise between January and May 2012. If I can just use those five months, <laughs> I think he must be near the top. What a what a bizarre and an incredible spell of goal scoring that was. You've also written about Philip Koku dipping down somewhat into the championship I notice um, Philip Koku Derby manager uh, a joint piece with Ryan Conway talking about a little bit of Dutch total football influence on his Derby side um, I don't need you to tell me about that piece because I implore everyone to go and read it it's very detailed as you'd expect but I want to pick you up on something you said when plugging the piece on Twitter calling Philip Koku <laughs> the most underrated player of the 90s in your opinion why is that? Just thought he was a brilliantly intelligent footballer you know the kind of um, archetypal defensive midfielder who maybe didn't get that much credit in his day, but I think made his, his teammates around him better. And no surprise that he's gone into management because he was the kind of player, I guess you could kind of say in a Mikel Arteta way, the kind of just sense was always reading the game on the pitch and probably was a top class player because of his, uh, 
his brain rather than his you know physical power well he's had an interesting first season at derby not packed with on-field success but in fairness uh, a lot of troubles off the field of course a lot of injuries to key players who i think would fit his system quite well notably christian bielik who they signed for 10 million quid from arsenal uh, who never really got going this season so definitely worth a read for any listeners who aren't a subscriber of The Athletic, theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking is the place to visit. To read those pieces, you'll get a 30-day free trial. So plenty of time uh, to catch up with everything on site at the moment before going forward with your annual subscription. Uh, now, on to today's topic. What are we talking about on this week's Zonal Marking Pod? Uh, we're going to discuss the managerial changes that happened over the course of 2018. 1920. There's seven of them in the Premier League with varying success. I guess the the standout statistic here is that of those seven, three of them were from the same club, uh, <laughs> which explains uh, our guest today. Yes, that club, of course, Watford and Adam Leventhal, who covers the Hornets for the Athletic, uh, joins us today to analyse all three sackings. Adam, at the end of the season, has if anything, brought more work upon yourself, where some writers might take a couple of weeks off. Uh, how are you getting on? Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm all right. Um, it has been quite a difficult season, to, to put it mildly. I think, you know, the fact that the season has ended, it, it gives a lot of people an opportunity to sort of refresh and get ready for a new challenge. And um, Watford are obviously having to uh, go through the whole rigmarole of having to employ uh, a new head coach, potentially a new sporting director as well, restructuring the environment around that head coach after the debacle that has been the 2019-20 season, and then also cut your cloth accordingly financially and also then know that you're going to lose some big players and at the centre of it employ a new head coach as well. So yeah, it's going to be busy, but I will try <laughs> desperately uh, to have some sort of holiday in the next uh, couple of weeks. Not to spread doom, but as someone who covers the championship very well and and has tried to analyse the, the fate, if you will, of relegated Premier League teams over the last few years, who of course come down with generally quite a lot of money compared to their championship rivals, but only Newcastle have actually achieved automatic promotion uh, in the season following. So there's a lot of work for Watford to do. Uh, and also, of course, for Norwich and Bournemouth before the season starts in around six weeks' time. But... We're on to talk about managerial sackings, actually uh, the fewest in the Premier League this season since 2005-2006, um, possibly due to the break that we had. Um, but uh, there was a bit of a flurry in November and December, but only five clubs sacked their manager out of 20, one of them three times. So let's start with the first of the season. We'll do this chronologically. Uh, the first sacking of the Premier League season was Javi Gracia. This feels like a long time ago now. And he was replaced 30 minutes later by Kike Sanchez Flores, who returned to the Watford dugout. Adam, uh, can you talk us through the circumstances behind this very early season sacking? Watford, I think, at the time were, were on one point from four games. Yeah, and and Javi Gracia had just picked up that that first point in the in the final game before he was sacked against Newcastle. Um, but you have to sort of go back to the end of uh, the 2018-19 season to sort of start to realise that things weren't quite going to plan for for Gracia. There was mitigation because Watford had reached the the semi final of um, mm. the FA Cup. They then had that great victory against Wolves, and there was always bound to be a little bit of a drop off in form, which there was towards the end of the season because you had a cup final. Um, 
but at the same time they had an opportunity to qualify for Europe and that drop off obviously cost them the opportunity to to play in Europe and it also meant that they went into uh, the FA Cup final with minimal confidence and from my point of view and the understanding that I got from the the hierarchy at the club when they lost 6-0 against Manchester City uh, something significant died as far as their trust in um, in Javi Gracia but in terms of the, the PR of sacking a manager that had finished in Watford's highest position in the Premier League and having reached the FA Cup final and having a good relationship with the fans they thought well no come on let's let's go against our usual um, course of action, which would be to replace the head coach in the summer um, and try something new. They stuck with him, but after what, yeah, four games, uh, that that faith ran out, um, and it it was really disappointing because for for, for Gracia and I, I've spoken to him for the Athletic, done a, a long interview, which you can you can read um, on his take on why he was sacked. He felt that it wasn't a case of um, quality being the problem. The results would obviously go against that because they lost against Brighton, lost against Everton, lost against West Ham, and then they they played against Newcastle and got got a point. Um, it was more the fact that he didn't have enough time at the beginning of the season. They brought in Saar and Welbeck. They only brought in one central defender in Craig Dawson, who'd been relegated previously. But he felt that there hadn't been enough time. And I think when you look at the course of action afterwards, bringing in Kike Sanchez-Flores, um, I think he was probably right. They could have done with at least sticking to him to the uh, the next international break, the uh, the October international break, rather than jettisoning him uh, in September. Uh, Michael, of course, Kike Sanchez Flores only had eighty five days uh, before he himself was sacked. But it's a short tenure. What can you remember, <laughs> given that it's quite a long time ago now, about how Sanchez Flores approached things uh, and how things went? Well, initially, I thought the system he used was relatively similar to what Gracia had done. Um, I was at the first game of the Kike Sanchez Flores reign, well, the second one, sitting next to Adam in a two-all draw against Arsenal, where. I mean, Watford went 2-0 down, but they really could and should have won the game. And it did feel like there was a bit of the, you know, the fabled new manager bounce. I remember they had about 30 shots in that game. It was incredible. But if there was a bounce, I mean, it was, you know, completely down to earth. Uh, the next game with the 8-0 loss at Manchester City, which I, I just think was, it felt so difficult for the club to, to recover from. And he only won one game there. That was in that, uh, I think it was a Friday night game away at Norwich, who obviously finished well bottom this season. He moved to a five-man defence, which I didn't really think suited many of the players that well. I think probably concerns in the in the wide areas were why he wanted to, to do that. But um, I, I thought that was a really strange appointment. I mean, Adam maybe can, can explain more than me, but my understanding was that Sanchez Flores had, had kind of fallen out with the board quite dramatically towards the end of his first stint. And I must say, I thought Gracia was... He was a little bit unlucky at the start of the season. I mean, Watford had only got one point from the four games, but I really didn't think they were outplayed in any of them. I was at the 3-1 loss uh, home to West Ham. I thought they are probably the better side. 3-0 on the opening day to Brighton was obviously a disappointing way to start. But again, I think that was a slightly harsh reflection of their efforts. So it just, to me, that felt like a really unnecessary change. And I think Watford were probably always playing catch up from there. Yeah, I think in in terms of those those results, um, yeah, the the Brighton defeat was was a sort of a reality check. They actually played really well up at Goodison Park in the second half, and and they could have they could have at least got a point in that one. The West Ham one, I think that's where the the faith in him um, 
in in Javi Gracia sort of faded away because yeah Watford had been on top they had an opportunity to kick on but it was a change in the second half as I understand it and um, when Mikel Antonio actually came on um, and he didn't quite pick up on the fact that he was having acres of space um, down the right hand side and then that led to West Ham scoring two goals in quick succession with Halle um, scoring for them and that was a sort of a, a decisive moment and then in the Newcastle game and this was a theme that went all the way through the season I'm not I'm not whinging on behalf of Watford but they got a really really bad deal in terms of VAR uh, the equaliser for Newcastle was scored after the ball had um, hit uh, Isaac Hayden's uh, hand, but it didn't get checked. It was almost at the phase where the, the referees were in a position where they thought, oh, I, I can't be bothered waiting around for this. Let's just, yeah, yeah, it was a goal. It was a goal. Just just kick on with it. So um, they got a, a bit of a rough deal there. But then in terms of the formations, and you're, you're absolutely bang on with, obviously, you are who you are. You know you, you know your stuff. But, <laughs> you know, the, the fact that that first game against Arsenal, um, he'd stuck with a back four. In the second half, yes, they could have gone on and won. He basically had stimulated the side to get a better performance playing four at the back. And then when Kike went into that game against Manchester City, it was almost as if he was still in a position where he was trying to assess his squad. And he made a whole load of changes which were completely unnecessary. You could see the thinking behind what he was trying to do. He had basically a 4-5-1. He had Fulkier, who'd never played for Watford before, over on the right-hand side as almost like a second right-back. He had Hughes on the left as a second left-back to try and tuck in and squeeze the gaps. But then Manchester City scored five goals within the first 20 minutes and, and that plan sort of went out of the window and that shattered confidence. And then after that, having to go to a, a back five, essentially because he felt there wasn't enough quality in that defensive line. And that the fact that he had lost faith in his players and always playing five at the back, whoever the opposition were, the likes of you know Sheffield United at home, Bournemouth at home, playing five at the back, the players were a bit like, well, okay, if you don't believe in us, that's going to shatter our confidence as well. So it was just a, a recipe for disaster. And in the background, there was pressure from above, basically saying, look, we've bought these players in. You've now got Saar, who can play out on the right-hand side, play him there. You've got De La Feo on the left-hand side, play him there. And you have now a central striker, potentially going to become available in Troy Deeney. So play your best players in the best system. And Watford felt that the best system was 4-2-3-1. But he really needed persuading to actually do that. And by the time he'd finally conceded defeat, which was in the Southampton game, his final game, he'd sort of edged towards it ever so slightly. It was too little too late. And incidentally, Watford got another rough deal with a, with a VAR decision with that um, handball in the build-up to the equaliser. So it was um, it was steadily, steadily, potentially moving in, in, in the right direction. But they had they had lost faith because he'd been he'd been far too negative starting to see uh, how tough things were for Watford earlier in the season and that the rain the short rain at least in terms of this season of Javi Gracia and Kike Sanchez Flores uh, well summed up by you guys there uh, Adam that that wasn't the end of it in terms of Watford managers this season uh, more on that later so just stay warm for us please Harry's sponsors Zonal Marking a podcast brought to you by The Athletic Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. 
Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, check. Five precision-engineered blades, check. A rich, lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover as well. As a listener of Zonal Marking, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support this podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash zonal right now. That's harrys.com forward slash zonal. After such an early dismissal, of Javi Gracia by Watford. We had to wait until mid-November for the second managerial sacking of the campaign, and it was at Tottenham. Maurizio Pochettino, of course, being replaced by Jose Mourinho. Uh, from Poch to Moo, Michael, at, at, time, at the time, rather, uh, some people felt things had just gone a bit stale with Pochettino. Uh, knowing what we know now, do you think that was... Uh, fair? Do you think his dismissal was was a fair thing for Daniel Levy to have done? Yeah, to me, it felt kind of inevitable at the time. Um, they hadn't won in five before that game. And I think there was a sense that maybe Pochettino should have left after the European Cup final defeat. That did really feel like the end of an era. Um, maybe for his own uh, personal financial reasons, was reluctant to resign. And, and in the end, I think when the when the change came, or when that second game, I think it was the right time. I must say, I was very surprised at the time they went for Mourinho. So yeah, maybe that's a slightly different t- debate to whether sacking Pochettino was uh, the right move. Well, they did go for Mourinho. Uh, a very broad question. Has the change worked? I suppose we should talk short term because that's often the, the, the immediate way of judging in-season managerial appointments. Uh, Jose Mourinho, very keen to point out their position when he arrived and at the season's end uh, on the weekend. Uh, do you think the change worked? A good appointment? I mean, 14th to 6th is a pretty big improvement, isn't it? I must say, I'd, I'd completely forgotten Spurs were struggling to that extent uh, upon Pochettino's departure. I think in the short term it has worked, yes. I mean, it's got them up the table. It's got them into the Europa League places. I think it's been a strange, what, two-thirds of a season for Mourinho in the sense that at the start, it didn't really feel like a Mourinho side. I mean, Spurs conceded two goals in each of his first three games back under him. And it did feel like a bit more of an attacking side. I mean, they absolutely hammered Burnley 5-0. I think in Mourinho's fourth game. Burnley got a very good defensive record this season. They were right up there in terms of clean sheets. So to concede five in one game really was quite a, an anomaly. I think towards the end of the season, we saw maybe more of a classic Mourinho side. Spurs weren't conceding many goals with the exception of a bit of a horror show away at Sheffield United. But I do think the question marks are the same question marks we always have with Mourinho. First of all, what is the long-term plan? He isn't a manager who sticks around for longer than two or three years. And I think this is a stage where Tottenham need to kind of start again and build something for the future rather than just hanging on to the generation of players that I think has come to an end. And the second is the entertainment factor, which Tottenham fans have you know, voice their concerns about. Under Pochettino, Spurs were trying to take the game to the opposition. I wouldn't always say it was the most brilliantly free-flowing and creative football, but they certainly wanted to play on the front foot. And that hasn't always been the case under Mourinho. So, yeah, it's it's the usual question marks. <laughs> That's definitely one of the biggest issues I've seen from Spurs fans online has been, you know, defensive organisation. That box has certainly been ticked. But going forward and in the final third, and especially as he is often 
compared to his rivals when you watch a Pep Guardiola side or a Jurgen Klopp side, a sense of a lack of plan in the final third and, and those attacking processes not quite being so slick or dare I say even really focused on for, for Mourinho. Is that a fair criticism uh, of uh, admittedly only two thirds of a season in charge so far? Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, Mourinho is not someone who who is particularly concerned about attacking football. He's probably relatively unique amongst top managers in the game in that the one thing I'd say about him is I still think he's been quite effective in terms of the you know the the basics of a tactical battle I mean the 2-1 victory over Arsenal I thought Spurs were really impressive and and just highlighted Arsenal's weaknesses and exploited them very well at other times I think his he's appeared as if he's evolved a little bit as a manager I mean I think his first few games in charge when they were playing quite a flexible defensive system sometimes a back four but it shifted to become a back three and getting Aurier forward on the overlap I thought that was interesting but yeah there's also an element of Mourinho being at times very negative I would highlight the trip to Burnley for this as I mentioned they won 5-0 at home against Burnley but for the trip to uh, Turf Moor he deployed a five-man defence with pretty much five centre-backs I would say Tanganga, Sanchez, Eric Dyer, Aldera uh, World and Vertonghen. Oh, yes. Which meant that Tanganga and Vertonghen were the wing-backs while you had the likes of Aurier, who's very much more of a conventional wing-back, on the bench. I mean, that does show how reactive he is. He was obviously scared about Burnley's long balls. And it was a, a pretty flat one-all draw where Spurs were probably lucky to get a point. So there's still those performances where you do understand the uh, frustration of the Tottenham fans. And which players at Tottenham do you think did well or poorly out of this change in manager? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm slightly struggling to think of anyone who's really benefited from that, actually. I mean, in the early few games, I think Deli Ali was looking more like himself as a as a proper number 10. Um, maybe it's it's a strange answer because obviously he wasn't there under Pochettino, but I think Bergwijn is a, the kind of player that does suit a Mourinho side. I think his quality on the break has been uh, very evident at times. I think maybe we'll see more from Son next year as well. I think he had a Actually, a very good season in terms of the numbers. Maybe that would uh, slightly flatter his performance at times, but he is the kind of player that Mourinho has got the best out of at times, that kind of goal-scoring wide midfielder. So, yeah, I think the players who are comfortable playing on the break are, are the ones who have uh, who've, you know, more likely to benefit when Mourinho has a full pre-season. Ten days after that managerial change, uh, Arsenal made one themselves. Unai Emery left. And, well, to start with, Freddie Jungberg was the caretaker manager but ultimately it was Mikel Arteta appointed full-time take me back to the start of the season uh, Michael what was the general feeling amongst Arsenal fans and followers of the club towards Emery and how did things play out between August and ultimately his sacking in November well they were struggling I mean they're struggling in terms of results but I think more struggling in terms of an identity Emery never really nailed down how he wanted Arsenal to play in terms of the system in terms of the attacking approach there was a lot of uh, chopping and changing and attacking positions and central midfield as well. Confusion about some players' roles, particularly Torreira, who, who came as a deep midfielder but seemed to be played in a more attacking role. The main concern with Arsenal was they were just conceding a huge number of shots. Conceding a number of goals, but really in terms of the shots, it was it was looking even worse when you look at that. So again, I think a change was needed. I think Arsenal needed someone who who had a clear identity and a clear purpose for, for taking the club forward. 
Obviously, the men who replaced him were former Arsenal players, first in, in Jungberg and then in Arteta. But I think that was slightly incidental. I think it was really just someone who had a clear structure and a clear idea for how Arsenal should be playing. What have been the major tactical changes under Arteta? You talk about a lack of identity under Emery. Uh, is that something that Arsenal fans can see more clearly under Arteta? Yeah, I think from the outset, there was more of a commitment to to possession football. I think the, the playing out from the back, which Emery liked, I think that's just done with a little bit more purpose, a little bit more structure. I think from the first performance away at Bournemouth on Boxing Day, I think, uh, one all draw, you could see the patterns and you could see that Arteta wanted Arsenal to play almost with a front five in possession, usually with the left back pushing forward, which was Saka at that time. He's moved into different positions further forward. And even though Arsenal have changed shape, they've changed to a 3-4-3, you still see that you know it forms more naturally in, in that system when you have the wing backs overlapping with the with the front three to basically form form a front five um, and I think the key player in that has been Aubameyang who obviously had another exceptional season and although Arsenal fans or some Arsenal fans have been critical of managers for playing him on the left I think when you have an overlapping left back and he can come inside to inside left positions I think that probably is his best position so yeah I've been uh Pretty complimentary about the way that Arteta has, has reshaped Arsenal. And of course, they've got a chance to finish the season on a high note with an FA Cup. And obviously, it's been Arsenal's worst league finish for, what, 25 years or so? But maybe I'm a bit of a traditionalist in thinking that if, if Arsenal finished the season with the, with the cup in the bag, then it's been a, a great first half season for Arteta. They finished eighth in the Premier League. Uh, am I right to say you'd be quietly optimistic at this stage about their chances next season under Arteta? Loudly optimistic? Yeah, I think they'll push forward. I think Arsenal obviously needs some some additions in the uh, summer transfer window. And it's been interesting that Arteta really has... He's kind of tried to play the, the cards right in terms of when Arsenal have got a win. He's really emphasised, look, I hope this gives the, the owners the confidence in in us going forward and, and that we deserve investment in the side. So I, th- I think it's clear Arteta really wants to get some of his own his own players in. Okay, not long after this, in early December, in fact, Marco Silva was sacked by Everton with the Toffees in the relegation zone. Uh, fair to say, Michael, this did not feel like a contentious decision at the time, nor in hindsight. No, it, it really got away from Marco Silva, didn't it? I, I felt a little bit sorry for him towards the end because he was basically trying everything desperately to find a, a formula that would work and it just wasn't happening. I was at the game against Leicester where they actually played okay but lost to a last minute Iheanacho winner and I think he probably would have got the, the chop then were it not for the fact that they had a game three days later against Liverpool and they got thrashed 5-2 in that one. Maybe slightly harsh reflection of their efforts to be honest but I think the time had come to make a change. And uh, obviously it was Ancelotti who eventually got the appointment, but really we should give credit to Duncan Ferguson who came in, he changed the system, I think he changed the mentality of the side. The first game was was that 3-1 victory over Chelsea where he played a almost an old school 4-4-2 on paper, but actually when you saw how it worked on the pitch, uh, Richarlison and, and Calvert-Lewin were coming very deep and keeping the side very compact and making them very difficult to play through. And they very much deserved that victory over Chelsea, which uh, I think probably made life slightly easier for Ancelotti when he got the job, albeit it was another couple of games for Ferguson in charge. And again, two positive results, uh, a draw against Manchester United and a draw against Arsenal. Um, I say positive result, but that was probably the worst game I watched all season. But uh, yeah, for, for Ferguson to be unbeaten in his three games against Chelsea, Manchester United and Arsenal, I think deserves great credit. Absolutely. Uh, Ancelotti was officially appointed or announced on the 21st of December, but his first game in the dugout was Boxing Day. Uh, If you look at the league table as if it began on Christmas Day, uh, Everton 10th, 
20 games he had 30 points 1.5 points per game there he obviously moved away from the relegation zone and, and were not involved in anything like a, a relegation battle how do you rate that stint that 20 game stint under Ancelotti so far how do you rate his uh, his first half a season out of 10? Yeah, I think he's done okay. I mean, it still feels slightly strange for me to be talking about Carlo Ancelotti in, t- in charge of a mid-table side, considering he's basically always been in charge of title contenders. I mean, from the results, I'd say the major pattern really is that the results have gone as you'd expect. I mean, they've, they've won quite a few games against bottom half sides, but the teams they've, they've been defeated by are uh, City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, and Wolves are all very good sides this season and then Bournemouth on the final day when Bournemouth had more to play for than Everton. I've been slightly surprised that Everton haven't looked a bit better at times against the the big sides. I mean, that FA Cup defeat, I think in January to, to Liverpool was a particularly poor performance, I think. I mean, I would kind of give Ancelotti a pass in terms of when they haven't competed in those games just because I think that the quality in the side is not particularly good in certain positions we did a podcast with Paddy Boylan back in March I think where he really spelled out the need for another really good central midfielder and I think without that it's quite tough to make this 4-4-2 system work um, Ancelotti has experimented with other systems on occasion he used a three-man defense to work Wolves when Theo Walcott was playing wing back, which isn't a position I've ever seen him play before. <laughs> it didn't work particularly well in a 3 0 defeat. But I think that did underline the fact that, you know, Ancelotti hasn't really been a back three manager at any stage in his career. And I think the fact he was trying that was maybe an attempt to beef up the centre of midfield with a third midfielder. So, yeah, another one who I think really needs additions in the summer if they're to push forward for next season. How likely is it that, I mean, you, you've studied so many Ancelotti sides really going back to the late 90s when he was with Juventus and then, of course, with Milan, with Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid, uh, Bayern Munich. It's a remarkable CV that he has and you would have studied so many of those teams. How likely is it that he could put together a side that looks like a classic Ancelotti side um, when managing a side who aren't, let's say, uh, one of the strongest squads around? How, how, many, how much compromise do you think he has to make when he hasn't, let's say, got Pirlo, Gattuso, Kaka, Ambrosini to work with? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I've thought of Ancelotti really as someone who's not as much of a tactician as a lot of the younger managers around. I think primarily what Ancelotti does is he gets big names on board, He's very good in a in a personal sense with players. I think in terms of the shape and the system, he's generally been happy to build that around the players at his disposal. He's not someone who comes into a club and says, look, we've got to play 4-3-3 or whatever. He basically, you know, he's a player first manager. And therefore, I think he's dependent upon good players. I think he has done a really good job with the two forwards, with Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin, who I think have been good without the ball, at times combining very well on it. And their goal scoring records has been... Both of them pretty impressive since the turn of the year. But yeah, I I do think they need more quality, particularly in that midfield zone. Possibly an extra defender as well. You know, they've they've had questions in in terms of the fullbacks at various stages this season, partly because of injuries. So yeah, I I think it's something that really needs to be addressed in terms of the the transfer window. And and if he has good quality players, I think he can get them happy and get them in a, a system. But he's maybe not the type of manager who is really going to transform average players to really top-class players. This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. 
and Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20, that's EPL20, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. Right, it's back to Watford. They are sort of the backbone of of this podcast, aren't they? Three managerial changes across this season, uh, ultimately not enough to save them from relegation. And from Javi Gracia to Kike Sanchez-Flores to Nigel Pearson. Uh, Adam, forgive me if I'm being ignorant here, but Watford have changed managers fairly frequently, I think it's fair to say, uh, under the ownership of the Pozzo family. Nigel Pearson, to me, didn't seem like a a classic Pozzo appointment, but he did have a miracle survival previously with Leicester City on his CV, uh, and he took over with Watford, bottom of the Premier League, six points from safety. How did this appointment come about? Well, I think um, the fact that they had got rid of Kike Sanchez-Flores and they didn't have a um, an immediate candidate lined up showed how little faith they had in Kike, first of all. Um, and they went into a period where they had an interim head coach partnership of Hayden Mullins and, and Graham Stack. So it was it was sort of a real sign of, look, we just need him out of the building. Let's sort out a, a firefighter. And then in that interim period, there was a lot of sort of vocal support from within the dressing room of, we need an English voice. It wasn't sort of xenophobic. It was, look, we need someone that's just going to get us back to basics, do the, the right things at the right time, uh, a bit of grit, a bit of determination, all that sort of stuff. Like the likes of Ben Foster were saying things like that. And I think that the, the board were listening listening, um, especially having tried two uh, continental head coaches before, they thought, OK, well, let's try something. Who, who have we got on the list? And they had historically always quite liked Nigel Pearson randomly because of the way that he behaved after that famous Deeney goal in the playoff uh, semi-finals back in 2012-13. He was sort of stood there stony faced as that dramatic breakaway goal occurred. And they'd always thought, oh, no, he actually behaved with, with great dignity then. So that seed had been planted. But then they sort of thought, right, okay, well, if we're going to go for a firefighter, who are we going to get? And his name came up. They approached him, they got him on board. And due to the fact that he'd actually had a a bit of European experience himself, he'd been out in Belgium, managing there and working in a sort of similar system where they had a, a director of football, they thought, okay, well, maybe he can slot in. And the initial signs were, yeah, He's come in, he's got them organised, he's basically told them, look, ignore what's going on outside of the dressing room, just focus on what you're doing. And once again, they got the, they got the managerial bounce and it, and it seemed to work. It was random, but it worked initially, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, did Pearson have any favourite players, by which I mean, was there anyone that 
that maybe Gracia and Sanchez Flores weren't using that he was able to get a lot out of? Or, or on the flip side, any previous starters in this team bombed out? Sometimes when you're trying to make an impact, you do have to make these personnel changes to, to try and get a reaction. Well, the first thing that he did was play the system that the um, the hierarchy liked. Uh, technical director Filippo Giraldi is obviously that big fan of, of 4-2-3-1, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on. He did also have Troy Deeney back. Whatever people think about him, he is a good um, linchpin if you are going to play a central striker. There is the argument that you would like someone a little bit more mobile who can make sort of darting runs to the near post and and be a little bit more um, creative himself. But he he does a job and he attracts bodies. That's what Nigel Pearson had always um, said about Troy Deeney. So he was now back from his his knee injury. And he did make a little bit of an alteration in midfield, which which helped actually. He was playing Abdullah Decore rather than in a holding midfield role where he'd been playing for pretty much his entire Watford career. He then moved him forward as the the attacking midfielder in the in the supporting three behind Troy Deeney. Um, and that meant that Will Hughes actually dropped back alongside Etienne Capu. And, and Will Hughes actually said, yeah, look, I like to play the game with the pitch in front of me rather than sort of on the edge of the penalty area. I mean, he's got he's got good skills. He can do things and be creative on the edge of the penalty box. We know that. But he preferred that position. And I think he also showed the fact that he is, rather than sort of a, a number 10 where he'd been playing earlier on in his career and under Nigel Pearson, actually, at Derby County in a sort of a creative uh, midfield role, he was actually quite enjoying ratting around and setting, you know, setting the tempo and, and crashing into challenges and that really showed in that initial run under Nigel Pearson when they won four games out of five but then you look at it as a, as a sort of broad piece of work yeah it was four wins out of five to start off with they only won seven in the end and that was you know that was his 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 big sort of body of work so I think that he he got a good reputation for that start but then things really did fade towards the end of of his reign. And obviously he had Ishmael Assar who had come in and done really, really well. And he was essential in that opening period under him. But he didn't really change that much. He was just playing the players in the right positions. And and, and it worked because they were, I think, probably a bit fearful of um, not doing what they were told. Undeniably, the high point of Nigel Pearson's reign at Watford was Liverpool's first defeat of the Premier League season, just at the point where people were starting to write their odes to the second unbeaten season in the Premier League. Uh, Pearson's Watford had other ideas, Michael. How did they work that? How did he approach that game and be the first manager to take down Klopp's men? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, before we consider that game, I think it's worth pointing out that Pearson's first game in charge was away at Anfield and Watford lost 2-0, but they actually started really well for the first half hour or so. Had a few chances on the break with the wide players going in behind. And that was the approach really they used against Liverpool. I mean, I wouldn't say that the approach was particularly revolutionary, but they just did the basic things very well. They defended deep in two banks of four. They had Will Hughes playing quite a, an impressive role deep in midfield and then really looked at the wide players quickly. You know, first of all, Dale Faye on the left and then he went off injured. Obviously, that was the end of his season. And then it was Sarah on the right who really put in his best performance of the season by quite a way. But yeah, that just showed that I think Watford did have the the defensive um, resilience sometimes to withstand pressure and also speed on the counter-attack. And Dini up front was causing Lovren some problems as well. So yeah, I guess the, the question really was why they couldn't do that more often. I suppose the less technical 
way of explaining that is that Liverpool, we're told, often press like a pack of wolves. Uh, but we also know that Nigel Pearson is very happy fighting off packs of wolves uh, when he goes on his walking holidays in Transylvania. And if you have no idea what I'm referencing there, please Google Nigel Pearson wolves. Uh, I would recommend that you do that right now. Well, we're going to finish the podcast by talking about uh, Nigel Pearson losing his job with just two games to go. But while he was there, uh, another team changed manager just before the turn of the year. Manuel Pellegrini left West Ham and was replaced by David Moyes. At the point of Manuel Pellegrini's dismissal from the Hammers, they'd lost nine games in 12. They were one point above the relegation zone. Uh, What did you make of, of this change Michael, from Pellegrini to Moyes in East London. Yeah, it felt like going back to basics, didn't it? I mean, Pellegrini, I've always admired him as a manager, I think at times with Villarreal and Real Madrid and Malaga and Manchester City, of course. He's been very good at getting combinations of attacking players playing well, particularly like wide players coming inside and combining with the forwards and central positions. The real problem for him was that West Ham's defensive record was dreadful. I mean, they were routinely conceding two goals a game, three goals a game. And therefore, when it came for him to to lose his job, uh, I actually thought Moyes was a decent appointment. I know a lot of people were critical because it was going back to a manager who had been there a couple of years ago and who they'd tried to move on from. But I understood the decision to try and move forward from Moyes and, and try and create a more attacking side. I also understand the decision that if that didn't work out with Pellegrini, maybe going back to him was a, a logical appointment. The results improved slightly. I mean, in terms of the points per game, it wasn't too much of an improvement. And if we're being honest... I think it was really about the likes of Norwich and Bournemouth dropping off dramatically that is the reason why West Ham have stayed up. But credit to Moyes, I mean, in the run-in, they got some really good results. They only lost one of their last seven games and they got that crucial win late on against Chelsea. They thrashed Norwich 4-0. Crucial victory over Watford as well was really the thing that sealed their survival. So when push came to shove, I think Moyes had a a disciplined side and an organised side and, and they just about got themselves out of danger. How has he gone about trying to corral this talented group of attacking players into a a good offensive unit? I mean, if you looked at the names on paper, you wouldn't necessarily think that Mikel Antonio would have become the player that he has become. Uh, How's how's Moyes gone about things in an attacking sense? I mean, it feels a bit old school, doesn't it? In the sense that they've got some really talented, creative players there. But I mean, there used to be, I'm not sure whether this is statistically true, but there used to be a sense that if you're in a relegation fight, you don't necessarily want the most talented, technical, creative players at your disposal. You want players who you can rely on. And I think there were some games in the running where it was very obvious that that's what Moyes was doing. So a fairly standard approach for him in the, the latter weeks of the campaign was... <laughs> that, is the most, that is the most proper football man opinion you've ever given on this podcast. None, well, of, these, none of these tippy-tappy playmakers in a relegation battle. Grit and determination, please. Well, I should qualify, you know, is, is I think what, what Moyes was trying to do rather than necessarily what I would have done. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, the, the one thing you should say is that Suchet was really good signing in January. He was a player I didn't know anything about. I can't even really remember the news of him signing dropping, but he had a really crucial role in the run-in. So they had him alongside uh, Declan Rice and then attacking midfield three of Jared Bowen, Mark Noble kind of, between central midfield and number 10. And Fornals, Fornals probably being the most kind of creative, technical player amongst them. And then Mikhail Antonio up front. But then you look at the players on the bench and there were the likes of Lanzini, Wilshire, Yarmolenko, Felipe Anderson, Sebastian Haller. So, I mean, I go back to my pre-season predictions at the end of every campaign and I had West Ham up in 
eighth. And I thought that if Pellegrini could have, you know, found a, a, a combination between the likes of Haller, Anderson, Yarmolenko and Lanzini, this could have been a really spectacular side. Moyes obviously felt that he had to do something completely different to get them over the line in terms of staying up. But I think, you know, overall, you still have to say it's an incredibly disappointing campaign for, I think, you know, in terms of the, the quality of the squad, certainly a, a top 10 side. It'd be interesting to see how this summer goes uh, from a transfer perspective. Declan Rice, you'd think, would be highly sought after by a couple of teams towards the, the top end of the table. I'm not sure what irons in the fire West Ham have lined up to replace him or, or anyone else that leaves. But um, it, it sounds like you're fairly positive about Moyes at West Ham uh, and therefore potentially for next season. Could I tempt you into predicting a, a move away from a relegation battle into the warm embrace of mid-table? Um, <laughs> I mean, you like to think so. I mean, if you're a side like West Ham, for example, that's survived narrowly or, or someone like Aston Villa, my sense is that the sides coming up are going to be quite strong. Uh, you know more about that than, than me, Ali. But, you know, someone like Bielsa's Leeds, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that they could do a Sheffield United and not even really be part of the relegation picture. So I think a lot of these sides like West Ham and Aston Villa are really going to have to improve over the summer, um, whether that's in terms of recruitment of new players or, or even moving on from managers. You do sense there will have to be some kind of big improvement. <laughs> Hi there, I'm David Ornstein and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. Right, time to welcome back Adam Leventhal, the Watford correspondent for The Athletic, probably the hardest working man uh, on site at the moment because Nigel Pearson did not make it to the end of the season. 25 points from his 20 games. You mentioned earlier, Adam, that maybe he was he was living off those early results. But even so, I must admit for the neutral, it seemed like a strange time to sack a manager. Those two games to go against Manchester City and Arsenal. Could you shed some light into the circumstances around Pearson's sacking? Why wasn't he given those last two games to try and save the club? Well, I think like with the previous head coaches, Gracia and Kiko Sanchez-Flores, it was a slow burn in the hierarchy, losing faith with with Nigel Pearson. And, and, and obviously we mentioned, you know, that great run to start off with a little bit earlier on. He had that exceptional performance against Liverpool, but that was then followed up with a really insipid performance against Crystal Palace prior to prior to lockdown and then when they came back from lockdown and that was a difficult period for for anyone you know for 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 the public for footballers Watford as a, as a football club they weren't particularly keen on getting back and playing because of the precarious position that they were in but they still had winnable games and although you know they started off with a with a sort of a comeback draw in the last minute with that great equaliser from Craig Dawson it sort of lifted everyone against Leicester City in that 1-1 draw after that consistently performance after performance they were slow out of the blocks against Burnley it looked confused against Southampton who although they had a great away record uh, and they beat better sides than, than Watford after lockdown Watford had to try and get something out of that game and they didn't come out firing that was then repaired ironically against Chelsea okay they lost 3-0 but they were far better organized and then they got two victories against Norwich against Newcastle and that made Watford fans think okay yeah one more win and we might survive 
But even in those games, they'd gone behind again. And I think the hierarchy were thinking, come on, you know, make a strong start, get ahead in a game. But that might have been a general reflection on, on the confidence within the squad anyway. But then the sort of final straw was the game against West Ham, a game with two sides, nervy as hell, looking over their shoulders, thinking, oh, you know, what are we, what are, what's going to happen in this game? And Watford just literally didn't turn up. There wasn't even a start, you know, 3-0 down in that first half. And that led to, as I understand it, some some pretty sort of heated words at half time in the dressing room. That then was followed up after the game with a, with a, a heated exchange of words with, uh, with Gino Pozzo and uh, Nigel Pearson. And from that point on, I think he was always destined to uh, destined to, to leave. And that happened pretty quickly afterwards. But they were never really thinking, oh, well, we have to budget for points against Manchester City and Arsenal in our final two games of the season. And I think, you know, the hierarchy thought, well, look, we've had mini bounces before. Let's maybe try and squeeze maybe a point out of these two final games or maybe even be able to get a win against Arsenal. But yeah, outside, people would have gone, oh, that's ludicrous. There's only two games of the season to go. But I think, you know, within the Watford bubble and people that were, you know, fortunate or <laughs> unfortunate enough to actually go and watch the games like I was, you could see that something wasn't quite right. And yeah, he was, as you say, living off that, that earlier run. So it wasn't that much of a surprise. It was... For the wider audience, it was, but but not for the people inside. And given Watford did not achieve a miracle survival, um, and given the fact that we are discussing them so heavily on this podcast about sacked managers in this season, uh, a lot of the reactions to their relegation have pointed to what I suppose is, is kind of low-hanging fruit, that the trigger-happy Gino Pozzo kept chopping and changing and by doing that you can't expect to stay in the Premier League I mean the flip side is that Bournemouth of course who came up with Watford five seasons ago never changed their manager uh, and still went down uh, do you think Pozzo being characterized as a, a sort of classic emotional trigger happy chairman uh, is fair because because I've seen some Watford fans actually say that feels like you're missing the point or rather just focusing too much on, on that. What do you have to say about that? I think he's ruthless. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. But it's not as if he's sort of getting an email through once every couple of weeks or once every couple of months saying, oh, you know, by the way, Gino, Watford aren't doing too well. You better have a look. And him just sort of going, yeah, we'll just sack whoever's in charge and we'll get someone else in. He's really invested in it. He knows what's going on. Some people may say, yeah, too too invested, um, sort of too on top of things. He's got an office at the training ground. He's got his technical director, Filippo Giraldi there. Scott Duxbury is also there at the training ground. You can try and sort of pick what side you think is, is better. Do you want a detached owner who doesn't maybe care and is only looking at the balance sheet? Or do you want someone that is really into it? He is a football man and he is also making these decisions based on footballing issues. The problem is, I think that the the environment around the head coach this season has really got to a point where there's been a breakdown in trust and that managers have felt, you know, claustrophobic. They've had the, the technical director, Filippo Giraldi, sort of breathing down their neck a little bit too much. And, and from my understanding now, there's been an acceptance of that fact and they need to just back away a little bit. They need to get back to their roots. They need to think, right, OK, we need a, a stronger head coach who is 
has got their own identity, which we agree with, but maybe we might need to just back away a little bit, give a little bit more time, a little bit more faith. And I know it's, you know, it's a relentless slog in the championship, but it can be a little bit more forgiving for, for a younger head coach, I think, because you've got, you know, you've got a game coming up within three days where you can correct things. You don't have sort of long swathes of time where you're sort of mulling over things and the pressure's really, really tough and hard in the, in the Premier League. It is tough, obviously, in the championship in different regards, but I think they might be thinking now, look, we can reset, get a new head coach in that is going to be a little bit more akin to how we were before, exciting, happier. That's the, that's the big word, I think, you know, happier and enjoying our football a little bit more. And then maybe can come back with um, a little bit more of a joyful experience back into the Premier League. But as you mentioned right at the top of the show, it is a very, very tough ask. And Watford have got a busy, busy six weeks or less than now um, to get themselves ready for um, what is going to be already a, a squeezed season. So, um, yeah, here we go again. <laughs> Well, with my EFL hat on, uh, it, it's an intriguing side to come down to the championship, even more so after I'd read your piece uh, upon relegation titled What Now for Watford uh, on the Athletics site. I mean, it, it's wide ranging, touching on the, the search for a new manager, but also just in terms of the playing staff. What a fascinating situation they're in. Uh, the future of the likes of Troy Deeney, Herelio Gomez, Danny Welbeck, very much up in the air. Uh, you know, players who are considered talented Premier League players future stars in Ismail Assar uh, and others like Delafeu and, and Ducore, I suppose. But then a whole host of, of well, what some would call the lone army uh, and part of the, the Watford Udinese system uh, who may be coming back uh, or may not be coming back. So it would certainly suggest that quite aside from the management search uh, that's a fascinating piece and and do go and read that on the athletic site theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking will get you a 30 day free trial right that's us done that's it for this week a look back at the managerial changes in the 2019-2020 premier league season the fewest made or rather the fewest clubs changing manager uh, in 15 years or so 14 years to be precise uh, and thank you very much to Michael for talking me through it Adam Leventhal as well working hard as ever talking us through all things Watford uh, we'll be back again next week with a fresh new topic Michael I'm really excited because you told us about the Premier League 60 project earlier on in the podcast I noticed that when you plugged this new series on site you said that you have whined incessantly about the inclusion of number 56 now given we've had 60 and 59 not long till we find out who you are so angry about being included in this uh, what else can we expect from you on site over the next week or so i can't get over this decision i can't say who it is because i get told <laughs> off but i mean uh, not a particularly long premier league career or a particularly distinguished premier league career i think there's probably about half of the current Liverpool side who can feel aggrieved to be behind this player in the pecking order. However, it's not about the order, it's about the profiles, and I'm sure the profile of it will be very good by a, a writer who knows them very well. Um, in terms of what I've got coming up on the site, there's something we've been working on for quite a while about uh, a very well-renowned player that is a you know a statistical look at his career that I think really could um, could just, yeah, 
almost blow people away with some of the statistical analysis, which which hasn't really been done by me. It's been done by Tom Warville. So we've got that coming up on the site next week. And indeed, we've got a podcast planned uh, to go alongside that article. So yeah, that's the main thing for me. And, and certainly another couple of profiles for this Premier League 60 series as well. Oh, that's very exciting. I didn't realise we had next week lined up already. I know that you guys like to keep everything under wraps you don't like to tease too much but you could at least tell me who we'll be talking about next week um, i'm looking forward to that it's going to be a cracker please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast there are so many athletic pods heading out at the moment really good stuff and, and they're all available for free on any pod platform so take a look on site and see what else there is uh, on offer they're also available ad free to the athletic subscribers that's where you'll read all of the pieces mentioned on this podcast theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking will get you a 30 day free trial and given we've got well just over 30 days until the resumption of the Premier League so as good a time as ever to subscribe to The Athletic and we hope that you'll do so off the back of this podcast and please join us again next week. 